0: Maxwell Taylor, America's senior military man, he says, well, we go to general war, I guess, if it's in our interests." And the president, audibly disbelieving, he says, what, you mean nuclear exchange? And Maxwell Taylor says, yeah, I guess you have to.
1: This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list to keep up with the latest episode. The 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis is reckoned to be one of the most perilous events in history when the world faced a looming nuclear collision between the United States and the Soviet Union. During those weeks, the world gazed into the abyss of potential annihilation. I speak with Sir Max Hastings, whose new history tells the story from the viewpoints of national leaders, Russian officers, Cuban peasants, American pilots and British disarmers. The period is brought to life with eyewitness interviews, archive documents and diaries, White House tape recordings and top-down analysis. It's more than purely a focus on the 13 days of the crisis. The book provides context through the Cold War experience of Fidel Castro's Cuba, Nikita Khrushchev's Russia and Kennedy's America. Among the areas we discuss is how Cuba became a crisis, the failure of intelligence on both sides and those nail-biting 13 days in which Armageddon beckoned. You can buy the book via the links in the episode notes and help support the podcast. Now, Cold War history is disappearing, but a simple monthly donation will help keep this podcast on the air. You'll be part of our community, you'll get a sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Hi, I'm Sean from Perth, Western Australia, and I support the Cold War Conversations podcast because these are the real stories of the world I grew up in and we are uniquely privileged to record the experiences and thoughts of the people who are
0: actually part of the shaping of our lives.
1: If a monthly contribution is not your cup of tea, we also welcome one-off donations via coldwarconversations.com donate. I'm delighted to welcome Sir Max Hastings to our Cold War conversation.
0: Well, when I started out on it, it it felt as if it was ancient history. And most of the time I'm writing ancient history, whether about the First World War or the Second World War or Korea or whatever it may be. But suddenly, of course, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has given what happened in 1962 an incredible immediacy. And one sees just as Nikita Khrushchev in 1962 in the Kremlin was a reckless gambler who took the world to, as I called it, the edge of the abyss, uh, so we've now got uh, Vladimir Putin in the Kremlin. And I have to say, I've said in my book, I've both in the first and the last chapters, uh, I, I've drawn the comparisons between then and now. And I've said that I personally believe Putin is more dangerous than Khrushchev because uh, in 1962... The Soviet Union was ruled by a presidium Mm -hmm. in the Kremlin. Um, And the presidium, uh, obviously, um, Khrushchev was overwhelmingly the dominant figure. But the fact remained that every stage, all through the missile crisis, he had to explain himself and justify himself for the presidium. Um, Today, as far as we know, there is no presidium, there is simply Putin. And the other thing that's quite extraordinary to me I've been a lifelong skeptic about intelligence. That although intelligence is tremendously important and sometimes it can do very good things, I'm struck with the fact that again and again in vital moments in history, that despite all the billions that all our countries spend on intelligence, we're incredibly ignorant about the other side. And what's extraordinary in studying what happened in 1962 is all the way through, there they are sitting in the White House trying to divine what on earth is going on in the Kremlin, and almost always, guessing it wrong. And in just the same way today, uh, everything I read coming out of the United States, and I read a lot of their stuff, uh, says that even today, we really have the remotest idea what is going on around Putin, how stable and secure he is, what the chances are of him falling. So um, what is frightening is in 1962, and again today, um, there we are in an extraordinary dangerous situation. And we know amazingly little about the other side's game.
1: The US didn't really know what was going on in the Kremlin, but they also didn't really know what was going on in Castro's Cuba either.
0: Well, both the two. I mean, first of all, Castro's Cuba. uh, They wouldn't have launched the Bay of Pigs invasion in 1961 with 1,500 Cuban exiles had they not believed that uh, Castro's regime was ready to be toppled. Now, what I've tried to do in my book there have been innumerable books about the missile crisis. But I think a weakness of a good many of them is that they focus entirely on what happened in the 13 days of October 1962. What I've tried to do is to frame those events in the context of the Cold War as a whole and also in the context of what sort of nation Cuba was in 1962 and the Soviet Union, and the United States, because to understand the behavior of all three leaders, it seems to me that um, you have to understand uh, all those three countries. Now, Castro's Cuba, I mean, Castro, think what you may of him, and of course, he was a megalomaniac. Uh, He was uh, one of the most charismatic, extraordinary personalities of the 20th century. His influence on Cuba in the end was disastrous. But he still, first of all, he'd ridden to power um, a couple of years earlier, 1959 um, on an extraordinary wave of popularity and also revulsion against the United States and revulsion against uh, Batista, who of course had been an American puppet all these years And there the Americans were in 61 and 62 convinced that Castro could easily be toppled they felt, Here's this um, um, stupid loudmouth who uh, has gone into bed with the Russians. How could the Cuban people not be aching to be liberated by the United States? And yet, in truth, Cuba had been um, a puppet of the United States. It had been exploited by the United States for um, for the best part of a century. And the idea never crossed the minds, even of people as intelligent as Jack Kennedy, that... Um, Although the Cubans were not very happy about a lot of things that were going on with the revolution, they preferred to be in bed with the Russians to being in bed again with the Americans. And it's amazing that even these intelligent Americans around the White House table couldn't get their minds around that.
1: It is surprising because, I mean, the White House was lots of intelligent people there, but obviously the military trying to pull in one direction... What comes across was that Kennedy does vacillate from time to time between invasion and bombing and then quarantining. And there's a lot of uncertainty as to how is the best way to approach this.
0: Absolutely. The first thing to remember about everything that happened in 1962 is this was only 17 years since the end of the Second World War. And all the people were in charge in the Soviet Union and in the United States were people who had been formed by the experience of the Second World War. And in one very important sense, uh, the Americans in particular, uh, they came out of the Second World War with a sense they had achieved absolute victory, that they had been in their eyes, and not entirely wrongly, the lead players in bringing down uh, both the Third Reich uh, and uh, the Japanese Empire. And their military was still fixated with the idea that victory is what you go into a war for, that the people in charge of the American military, you had Maxwell Taylor, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who become a star as a paratroop commander in Europe uh, in, in World War II. You've got uh, Curtis LeMay, who really was a character pretty much out of Dr. Strangelove, the um, Stanley Kubrick's horror movie about the Cold War, that Curtis LeMay had been the architect of the firebombing of Japan, which had killed, uh, of Tokyo, which had killed far more people than the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And Curtis LeMay was a man who believed in winning. Curtis LeMay was a man who was, Um, he thought that real men were not frightened of war. They were not frightened of bombing the shit out of their enemies. And Curtis LeMay was the head of the US Air Force, enormously influential, possible personality. And he believed that when the United States had a huge nuclear superiority over uh, the Soviet Union, which it did in 1962, that America must use this superiority to gain a victory over these um, stupid Cubans, these um, uh, wretched uh, people who lived among palm trees. who um, He didn't give a ship for the Cubans. He thought they were contemptible. He believed if the United States started bombing Cuba and invading Cuba, that the idea that the Cubans could stand up to the U.S. Army, Navy, and Air Force was absolutely ludicrous. And one of the most frightening documents that I read researching this book was all the transcripts of oral history interviews with the leaders of the US Air Force, including LeMay, but all the others. And after the missile crisis was over, and the world had drawn back from the abyss, and most of the world was mopping its brow and thinking, thank God we got out of this in one piece. There were all these Air Force generals saying, those stupid, feeble people in the White House, uh, they had the chance of a historic victory over the Soviet Union. They had the chance to... Uh, in the words of one of those Air Force generals, clean up the rat's nest in Cuba. They had the chance to get in there and bomb the shit out of them, invade them, and they didn't take it. And their contempt after the missile crisis for Jack Kennedy, for all the people around him uh, who, in their view, had had let the side down, had missed this chance of historic victory, uh, was unbelievable, as, as you read these transcripts. Now, on the other side, over in the Soviet Union, To understand the Soviet Union and Russia today, one has to understand this huge sense of victimhood and grievance that the Soviet Union has been carting around for a couple of centuries. That the Russians are enormously proud people. They think they have a great culture. They think uh, they rightfully deserve to be respected as one of the great powers in the world. And they feel a rage towards the world for its refusal to respect them on their own terms. Now, we would say, what is the respect? Uh, All that Russia today is offering the world is oil and gas, when it chooses to sell it to them, and a willingness to use extreme violence. Uh, But in 1962, again, the legacy of the Second World War was hanging heavy over them, because they were absolutely convinced that they'd won the, the Second World War, that they had been the principal architects of the defeat of Hitler. And it was perfectly true that the Red Army had done most of the killing and the dying, that whereas the United States had lost maybe 400,000 dead in World War II, and Britain about the same, uh, that there was a Soviet Union with 27 million dead who'd killed, maybe uh, figures vary, but let's say had certainly killed at least 70% of all the German dead in World War II. So they were absolutely convinced, as they are to this day, that they deserve credit, which the West denied them, for um, uh, the freedom of Europe, for uh, destroying fascism and so on. And their rage towards those who deny it to them uh, is very hard for us to understand.
1: And also the, the West considered the Soviets as almost an, an equal of the US, a massive economic superpower, but uh, the reality was somewhat different.
0: Absolutely. Another huge intelligence failure, the wider intelligence failure in '62. respected uh, uh, economists such as J.K. Galbraith and, uh, and uh, Paul Samuelson suggested that within a generation the Soviet economy might overtake the American economy. Well, from what we now know, this was absolutely a fantastic idea because the Soviets, as one man thoroughly understood, Nikita Khrushchev, well, the country was an economic basket case that when Americans were eating steak, that in the Soviet Union, in some areas, you had bread rationing, whereas Americans were watching color television in growing numbers, that those privileged Russians who had access to televisions could see little tiny black and white sets, which they had to watch through magnifying screens filled with water. I mean, this was how primitive it all was. And yet somehow this idea of the Soviet Union as a real competitor uh, was still there. And America's um, sort of, and I've tried to describe this in my book, um, there was this terrific ambivalence in American minds Half the time, Americans thought they were the most privileged, successful, fortunate society on earth. And the other half of the time, they were absolutely haunted by terror, that the communists were going to take all this away from them. And so this ambivalence uh, uh, was, was always there, the schizophrenia. Um, and it, was, it helps to explain American behavior.
1: The Cuban Missile Crisis is also about politics, though. Because Kennedy's got his eye on the 1964 election too.
0: Jack Kennedy was one of the most sophisticated and intelligent and impressive presidents the United States has ever had. And he was certainly one of the most cultured and most traveled presidents. Um, He knew an awful lot about the world. He'd seen an awful lot of the world. And his judgments about the world were pretty realistic. He saw the limitations of the Russians. He saw that they had their own fears and their own uh, concerns, which you didn't have, always have to indulge, but which you had to recognize. But he also knew that he was desperate to get reelected in 1964. And all the time, I mean, he said to Kenneth Galbraith once, his friend, the economist, and he said, there are only just so many concessions that I can make to the communists in one year and ask the American people to re-elect me. So in Kennedy's mind, there was always this tension between half the time um, recognizing uh, all the communist, and especially Russian neuroses, and um, wanting to, in some measure, at least indulge them and accept them, and the other half recognizing that already you had conservative America thinking that uh, Kennedy was weak, uh, that he was uh, he was already giving far too much to the, the commies, to the red peril. And so all the time, politically, there was this tension in Kennedy's mind. And this was true during the missile crisis, that on the one hand, he got his generals telling him, in the most terrifying language, that the only course that any responsible American leader take when this revelation came forth, that the Uh, Russians had deployed uh, ballistic missiles in Cuba, was to bomb the missile sites and invade Cuba. Kennedy didn't want to do this. He saw that this was an incredibly dangerous, possibly reckless course that could lead to nuclear war. But he was also haunted by the idea that if he was seen to be weak, that conservative America would have him for breakfast.
1: He is tied in in knots here with the, with this situation because he was elected on the basis of this missile gap, yeah. which is a complete myth. I Absolutely. mean, the, the American superiority in missiles is is huge a seventeen to one. Yeah, yet he's conscious that any shooting or any firing with Cuba is going to kill Soviet troops potentially start an escalation that's going to get out of control. And I think it also comes back to the intelligence as well, is that the Americans weren't aware that there were tactical nuclear weapons on Cuba at that point.
0: The first great revelation, October the 16th, 1962, that the president is told that U2 reconnaissance photographs of Cuba show unmistakable evidence that the Soviets have installed nuclear ballistic missiles 90 miles from the mainland of America. But they, the CIA then reckoned that the Russians had 5,000 personnel on the island. They did not know the Russians had 43,000 personnel on the island and tactical nuclear weapons. So the Americans believed that an invasion was going to be the easiest thing, the easiest way out. It was only 90 miles away. They got Marine divisions are all set to go within days. They reckon they could get an armored division um, over ready to move within a week. Um, They thought this was going to be easy peasy. Um, And it was Kennedy who was not himself a military man, but he saw it. And one of the most terrifying conversations, uh, the first day that XCOM, this amazing um, committee of the National Security Council, of which we have these mesmerizing transcripts of their, and tapes of their meetings, which I must say I've been absolutely gripped by. And I've unhesitatingly and shamelessly used large passages in my book because they're so amazing reading. So day one, uh, that a large chunk of this meeting of XCOM is saying, well, we just got to get in there and we got to bomb the shit out of them and we've got to then invade them. And leading this charge, is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, World War II hero, Maxwell Taylor. And most people around the table, including the president, thought that if they did that, the Soviet response would be to seize West Berlin, which was then um, a Western enclave um, held by garrisons, American, British and French token garrisons in the middle of communist East Germany. And there was no doubt that although um, all those garrisons would resist, That at the same time, there was no doubt whatsoever that uh, uh, the Russians could overrun Berlin. And Bobby Kennedy uh, then asked, well, okay, so they take over Berlin. What do we do then?
1: Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more.
0: And Maxwell Taylor, America's senior military man, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he says, well, uh, uh, we go to general war, I guess, if it's in our interest. And the president, Disbelieving, audibly disbelieving, he says, "What you mean, nuclear exchange?" And uh, um, Maxwell Taylor says, "Yeah, I guess you have to." And then Kennedy makes this fascinating, so important statement. He says, "He says that would be the ultimate failure." He says, "Whatever else we discuss around this table in the days in, ahead, uh, we must remember that general nuclear exchange is the ultimate failure." And We've got to decide on courses of action that are least likely to bring that about. And the notion that it had to be the president who points this out to his senior military people and to some of the others around the table is almost incredible.
1: It is incredible that the US military was seriously considering fighting a nuclear war and and believing that they could win a nuclear war. I know the uh, Arsenal's of weapons were smaller at at this point. But even so, it would have been devastating to the world.
0: Absolutely. And I think our debt to Jack Kennedy, Kennedy today in America is a very controversial figure, partly because there's so much hostility about his treatment of young girls and so on, which is indisputably very ugly. But I think, and I've certainly said in the book, that his handling of the missile crisis uh, is, is his best claim upon greatness. I mean, it was uh, all the way through, Kennedy realized uh, that a general nuclear exchange will be the worst possible outcome, and whatever they do, they got to get out of this. And he was surrounded by people who were saying, whatever we do, we mustn't appease the communists. And that terrible word, appeasement, and yet, Kennedy said, uh, you know, we, he said this language, this talking about appeasement, it doesn't make sense in this context. And he was a great reader of the columnist, uh, 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 Walter Lippmann, uh, one of America's wisest men. And Lippmann said, he said, you cannot in the nuclear age talk about appeasement. You have to realize that you have to manage every crisis, whether it's in Berlin, whether it's about Cuba, whether it's in Asia, but always remember it that the supreme horror would be a nuclear exchange. And Jack Kennedy, although he didn't say so, again, what I've identified in the book as one of his most important uh, uh, moments of wisdom, very early on, he realized that when a lot of other people were telling him that he'd got to try and batter the Soviets into submission, Kennedy came at it differently. Kennedy decided there got to be a bargain. He decided that the United States was going to have to pay a price to get these missiles out of Cuba. And although he went to great lengths, and he lied through his teeth afterwards to deny the nature of any bargains with the Soviet Union, he was always convinced that a deal that would have to be a dirty deal may be, but it would have to be a deal to get these missiles out of Cuba. And again, I think this displayed supreme wisdom. And again, I've also said in the book that one thing that's quite spooky, if you look at the, um, at the list of presidents who followed Kennedy and the White House, by my reckoning, less than half of them could have been counted on to make the same calls that he did all the way through. Um, that there was one moment on the Saturday The last Saturday uh, before the crisis was finally resolved, when again he was under enormous pressure from all sorts of people to launch an invasion of Cuba and to bomb Cuba, and uh, he said he he, he said these words on Saturday evening, and he said, "We will not attack tomorrow. We shall try again." And those are terrific words, uh, terrific words. And some people have argued that he wouldn't have attacked tomorrow anyway, but I think. Um, I think it could almost have been his epitaph, those words that I think his willingness to keep uh, holding back, to keep uh, to keep talking are terribly important. And again, uh, I, I mean I've made myself very unpopular today in the context of Ukraine in some circles by saying that Putin has no case whatsoever for his invasion of Ukraine. Um, but again, because Russia is a nuclear armed state, we just cannot talk about trying to batter the Russians into the ground. In the end, we've got to try and talk about, not uh, by um, handing over Ukraine. We're absolutely right to give absolutely maximum military support to Ukraine. But um, I don't believe it's going to be possible to get the Russians out of Crimea for a start, as some people have been talking. And I do believe that you can't talk about generational victories uh, over Russia, which some people have been talking about, when all the time the danger is there of, um, the, the man in the, in the Kremlin, uh, unleashing nuclear weapons, and I believe Putin is capable of it, and actually in that respect, uh, Nikita Khrushchev displayed in 1962, although the world didn't know it and the West didn't know it, Nikita Khrushchev was displayed far more wisdom than Putin today, that, um, Khrushchev realized from a very early stage of the missile crisis that as soon as it became plain that the Americans knew about the missiles and the Americans were willing and ready to invade and bomb um, if they didn't get them out, he knew, although he didn't admit it to the world for a terrifying week, he knew he was going to have to back off.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the Maxwell-Taylor-Kennedy exchange is one of, well, one of many (laughs) standout pieces in in the book and you mentioned khrushchev there i interviewed Sergei khrushchev a number of years back and uh we obviously spoke about cuba and uh he said to me that his father said look what once the you know the firing starts we're going to lose control and i think that's the other side of it it's the command and control of these weapons in cuba are up to the local commanders aren't they
0: No, you're absolutely right. And it was, it was, there was in 1992, they had a historic conference in Havana, which was attended by the 1962 uh, US Defense Secretary Robert McNamara, whom actually I got to know in his old age. And McNamara said at that conference, he was stunned to be told, which he had not previously known about the Soviet tactical nuclear missiles uh, in Cuba. And he shared a a view which I've expressed in the book that I have no doubt that um, neither the Kremlin nor the White House uh, wanted a nuclear war over Cuba. But if the Americans had invaded, which they could very well have done, and if Russian forces were taking the hammering they would have been taking, and they were taking terrible losses, There were no technological safeguards to prevent local commanders from using tactical nuclear weapons. And McNamara said at this 1992 conference, he said, we know that neither Khrushchev nor Kennedy wanted nuclear war, but what about the lieutenants? And what about the lieutenants? This is the point that these guys, and for instance, to give another example during the missile crisis of a, a complete failure of understanding. Saturday morning, the last Saturday morning of the crisis, the 27th, I seem to remember, of October, that a Soviet anti-aircraft missile battery on Cuba shoots down an American U-2 reconnaissance plane, killing the pilot. And at the White House, they don't hear about this for hours. Another astounding aspect of the crisis is how slow communications were. It was hours and hours before people in either the White House or the Kremlin heard about stuff that was going on at sea in the Atlantic with uh, Russian submarines uh, or um, over Cuba. But when they do hear, somebody at the White House table says, well, they fired the first shot. And that remark was prompted by the assumption that there was bound to be a second shot. Because again, in the White House, they took it for granted that the shoot down must have been the result of a conscious decision in the Kremlin. And actually, it had been nothing of the kind. It was the act of a local Soviet commander who had had enough of the Americans' uh, American aircraft buzzing the Russians over Cuba and just decided on his own initiative to shoot down this um, this American plane. And Khrushchev and his defense minister in the Kremlin were appalled when they heard about this many hours later. And again, this was a completely local initiative. Well, in the same way, there was this famous episode of... Um, a Russian Foxtrot submarine out in the Atlantic, which was being harassed by American warships who were dropping uh, small depth charges. Which so happens, I've been aboard a Royal Navy submarine in 1966 on an exercise where they drop scaring charges. And I can tell you, I remember what it was like hearing those charges clanging on the hull. And of course, we knew that they're only practice charges and they're not intended. But boy, when you hear those charges echoing on the hull, it feels like quite something. Well, the same way, these Russians who were anyway having a terrible time on this submarine with um, insufficient water, with um, no air conditioning, with uh, all in terrible physical state and mental state having been underwater. And the Americans taking reckless risks, the US Navy, who also wanted war, and the US Navy, um, harassing these people half to death and aching, spoiling for a fight and dropping grenades, depth charge, uh, practice depth charges and so on. And allegedly, this uh, Soviet commander said he's had enough of this and he's sure war's broken out on the surface. And he's going to fire his, um, his nuclear torpedo. And the Americans didn't know that these four Russian submarines out there had nuclear torpedoes. Well, There's some doubt about this, and I'm a bit of a sceptic about this particular story. Uh, I'm by no means sure how close this uh, Soviet submarine commander got to firing. um, That It required three keys on the submarine to um, arm this uh, nuclear torpedo, and there's no evidence at all. We may one day get to hear the answers if we ever get uh, a more open regime in the Kremlin, they undoubtedly have all the reports in, the, in their archives. And that's one of the big secrets of the missile crisis that is still an unknown and which one day we might know the answer to if we get a different sort of leadership in Russia. But what we do know, the point about it all is, it doesn't matter what the detail was about what happened in that Atlantic, whether or not this uh, submarine commander really did come close to firing his nuclear torpedo. What we know is that he had a nuclear torpedo, that there was an incredibly tense exchange out there in the Atlantic, and that uh, the men aboard that submarine had the discretion to fire that weapon uh, should they choose to do so. And that alone was another indication of just how terrifying um, something can happen. Because once you had that situation, if a nuclear torpedo had been fired, not only the uh, American escorts, but an uh, American aircraft carrier nearby uh, would have gone to the bottom instantly uh, in the, uh, following a nuclear explosion. Once that happens, the pressures for escalation become uh, almost irresistible. And um, I think the last page of my book, I say, to me, the lesson of uh, the whole missile crisis is be afraid. And nobody could ever accuse either Nikita Khrushchev or Jack Kennedy, both fascinating personalities whom i have written a lot about. Nobody could accuse them of lack of personal courage. But they were both prudently afraid of nuclear weapons. I think this motto, it should be our motto for today, be afraid, just as it was for them. And my respect for Kennedy, and of course Khrushchev was a fool Uh, ridiculous to have got himself into this by putting these weapons there. But Khrushchev had the intelligence to realise what was at stake once he started. And Khrushchev, of course, got the fright of his life when in the middle of the crisis, when he's already a very frightened man, um, seeing the specter of nuclear war, and suddenly he gets this message from Castro in Cuba, who is an authentic nutter, and who says, well, of course... um, uh, if the Americans invade Cuba, then Russia has only one choice for uh, the, the, the freedom of Cuba and uh, the cause of communism and so on. It's got to launch a first strike against against the United States. And it's got to launch a first strike against the United States. And um, Khrushchev, at an emergency meeting of the Presidium, uh, when this was reported to him, he said only a man who is blinded by revolutionary fervor or had no understanding of what thermonuclear war means, could possibly make such a digestion. And this put the fear of God into the presidium. The combination of their conviction that the Americans were on the brink of invading Cuba and uh, their horror, they felt they got into bed with this Cuban revolutionary who was such an egomaniac uh, that he couldn't see beyond up uh, the glory as as, as Anastas Mikoyan, um, K- Khrushchev's most trusted uh, subordinate, uh, said later to, uh, to Castro, he said, you people are, are all ready to die beautifully, but we're not in favor of dying beautifully or at all. And it was amazing that all these people like Fidel Castro and uh, Che Guevara, and they're extraordinary people, but they're all egomaniacs, and they're all so obsessed with the beauty of revolution, and yes, the beauty of death for its own sake, that they lose any any sense of what's in the interests of uh, their own society, never mind the world. So you have this extraordinary mixture. You've got the nutters on both sides, uh, headed by Fidel Castro and Che Guevara on one side, and the uh, Curtis LeMay and others, and the American camp, And you've got the sane voices. And thank God, the same voices were there.
1: I mean, I, I'm always surprised that, well, not I guess not surprised, but the the fact that Khrushchev got himself into this situation because Cuba applied or wanted to join the Warsaw Pact, and he did, he said, "Well, no way," because you know I can't I can't defend them. That yet he still goes ahead and basically puts world-ending weapons on on
0: Cuba. No, you're absolutely right. He was a risk taker. And um, it's extraordinary. One has to remember, and again, I've profiled uh, Khrushchev and Castro and Jack Kennedy at length. And they're all amazing people in different ways. And Khrushchev, one has to remember his career steeped in blood that he'd come up, up through the ranks of power in the Soviet Union on Stalin's coattails. And Khrushchev had been involved in an enormous amount of death. Only three or four months before the missile crisis, he'd authorized before the event and then approved afterwards um, Soviet troops firing on unarmed protesters, industrial protesters, in a city near the Black Sea, uh, where all they were complaining about was uh, r- raised uh, uh, work norms and food prices. And when they demonstrated, uh, the Red Army opened fire and killed 26 of them. And um, Khrushchev had authorized this. And Khrushchev had authorized plenty of other um, equal acts of repression. He wasn't nearly as brutal as Stalin. And he'd actually released a large number of people from the Gulag. But he was certainly no softy. But um, he was a risk taker in that, I mean, he started the whole missile issue by saying one day in April, 62, to his defense minister, Marshal Malinovsky, he said, uh, uh, how would it be if we put a hedgehog, down Uncle Sam's pants? Malinovsky, what do you mean? And he said, uh, if we put ballistic missiles in Cuba. Now, what was amazing was that his generals, including Malinovsky, went along with this idea. And when uh, Khrushchev said that his whole plan was they'd install the missiles, deploy them, ready for launching. And then in November, he'd go and make a big speech to the United Nations announcing this and give the Americans the shock of their lives. But they couldn't do anything about it. And the generals told Khrushchev that they were confident they could hide these enormous missiles in Cuba under palm trees. Well, this was as mad as Curtis LeMay on the other side that, um, I mean, you, you, you're just disbelieving. And I think, again, you know, one of the things, what do we learn from this? The, it's terrifying how many nutters there are around. And, and one of the extraordinary uh, exchanges which uh, astounded Jack Kennedy, on about day four um, of the missile crisis, that means four days after the Americans privately knew about the missiles, but hadn't told the American people or the world. And the chiefs, the American chiefs of staff are around the table with Kennedy in the White House. And Curtis LeMay tells Kennedy, he said, well, he said, uh, you have only one option, and that is you've got to bomb and invade Cuba. And, Uh, He said anything less is going to seem like a pretty pathetic response to the American people. And if you just launch a blockade, which you're talking about, then it's going to seem ridiculous. He said, you're in a pretty bad fix. And um, Kennedy said, I mean, he's talking to the President of the United States. And Kennedy said, what did you say? And um, LeMay said, you're in a pretty bad fix. And you can hear on the tape that, I mean, Kennedy is disbelieving that this mad airman could talk to the president in that language. But it's one of the things that makes Kennedy so lovable, and he was lovable, was he said to humour, And the fact that at that moment, uh, he said to, uh, he responded to LeMay, he said, well, he said, if that's true, he said, you're right in there with me. And then after a theatrical pause, he said, personally, But, of course, all the others around the table are disbelieving that uh, this mad airman could talk like this. But so you've got these nutters on both sides. And this is where Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove, that's why it's a classic, because he's portraying these nutters, and by God, there were nutters. And we'd all like to think that today uh, the the people in charge of the armed forces are more sensible, sober people. But... um, there always are these nutters out there who think you've got to go the distance. And I'm every day, I'm reading stuff in the papers from people talking in the context of Ukraine. And they they say that people like me are soft on Ukraine. I've said repeatedly that whereas Khrushchev had some sort of moral and legal case for putting his missiles in Cuba, because he could argue that morally and legally there was no difference between uh, the Cubans choosing to have Russian missiles on their soil, and the British and the Turks and the Italians are choosing to have uh, uh, American missiles on their soil. And he had a sort of case, although, of course, everybody knew that politically it was inevitable the Americans would go mad. But today, Putin has no case at all. But that doesn't alter the fact that Russia is a nuclear armed part. And if we want to keep the wheels on this planet, if we want to keep everybody alive, we have to box very cautious and clever.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean the the humor of Kennedy comes across quite a lot in in this book where he, he sort of uses it to obviously diffuse the the tension there. I mean one one of the other things that happens on that last Saturday the um 27th I think it is which um again there's sort of an element of Kennedy humor in there although it's more frustration is when there's a U2 goes gets lost over the soviet union and when he gets the news he says god these there's always somebody who doesn't get the order or doesn't get the message
0: absolutely um and it was i mean that was incredible too i mean there were various things were incredible about it first of all that the u.s air force when they knew that this u2 had gone missing over the soviet Union, they didn't tell the white house for i forget exactly how many hours but about five or six hours and um, the communications failures, but again another lesson I've learned from all my studies of, of history, the communications failures are almost beyond belief. I mean in the uh, in the Falklands War, all sorts of stuff was going on that even with all this miraculous technology in 1982 and uh, all the um, satellite telephone facilities and all the rest of it The failures of communication between commanders were amazing. And I remember the uh, captain of the command ship, Fearless, in the Falklands, a very smart guy called Jeremy Larkin. And he said to me after the war was over, he said, you know, he said, I never used to understand all these rows between the generals in World War II. But he said, I do now, because I've seen officers who understand each other perfectly when they're face to face. But when they're separated by 10 miles and communicating by signal." that are uh, the most ghastly misunderstandings uh, are, are set in. And what people don't understand about the brilliance of technology, somebody's got to read the stuff. And um, even in, in recent crises, uh, I'm often being told by senior officers that the trouble is somebody's in, in, in the business of reading the stuff, um, you put higher and higher priorities on your signals. And all it means is the delays. So when it's... Um, ultra high-speed, most urgent, most secret, blah, blah, blah. All that happens is by the leapfrogging of priorities, you end up with even those sort of signals taking three or four hours for somebody to read them. And um, this is always the danger. This is what makes the world such a dangerous place in the nuclear age because of um, the contrast between the speed at which unspeakable things can happen, the speed at which dreadful weapons can be detonated, and the the relative sluggishness of communications and the dreadful communications failures that can take place.
1: I think one of the things, well, there's there's a lot of things I, I like about this book, Max, but the fact that you weave in the personal stories there, you know, you've got like the son of a construction worker in Havana, you've got Soviet troops on the coast with you know awaiting an, an american invasion and then you're in the white house and it is almost as though you're there obviously as you say you're working from the benefit of these um tapes but how how do you locate these personal stories in order to weave this together
0: i'm very lucky that i've got this fabulous uh, russian researcher uh, uh lubov uh, whom i share with andy beaver and uh, Luba has done wonderful work for Anthony and wonderful work for me. And she still, she's passionately committed. She's brilliant. In the old days, she used to barely leave me around Russia interviewing veterans. That was 20-something years ago. Nowadays, they're all dead. Um, but uh, first of all, actually, in the case of, she did find in Ukraine, and this was before all this stuff happened in Ukraine, Veterans the Red Army, whom we got interviewed uh, for this book, about their experiences uh, in Cuba in 1962. But also, she's a genius at pulling stuff off the internet. There are an amazing number of websites of Soviet veterans of Cuba and their stories. And of course, you can't believe everything they say. In fact, I would, I've would i said in my book, that one or two of their websites are absolutely for the fairies. I mean, they're uh, absolutely bonkers, some of the claims they make about stuff that they allege hum, But the fact remains, there are terrific stories and although, because of COVID, I wasn't able, I had to cancel a trip to Cuba to interview Cubans, I did find a wonderful researcher in Cuba to do interviews with me with Cubans. The real thing, it's all about people. And all of my books, what I'm trying to do is tell people stories, to, to tell the human stories. And what always makes the difference is when you get the great human story. And it's not... They don't give you the factual information. The factual information has to come from other places. And actually, I'm very cautious about accepting uh, factual data that somebody just gives you from their memory because we all get our memories. Our memories all get pretty screwy. I mean, stuff I did in Vietnam or or the Falklands or whatever, I wouldn't trust my own memory now after 30, 40, 50 years um, to the accuracy. But it gives you the feel, the flavor of what took place and of how people felt then. And so the human stuff, all the time, I'm trying to tell the story simultaneously from the top down and the bottom up. And um, I say what I'd like to feel, people would feel after reading my book, is that they not only know more about the missile crisis, but they've also seen it in the context, the Cold War as a whole, and, of what sort of societies America was that you know I, I like to write about the fact this was the year that uh, the movie of West Side Story was released this this was the year that Chubby Checker made the, uh, the the twist famous and all sorts of other stuff and of course it was the year that only weeks before the missile crisis uh, Kennedy was dealing with huge uh, white supremacist riots at the University of Mississippi at the admission of a black student and. So you're just trying to set this in context. and At this stage of of the game, I'm very mistrustful of books that say they've got great historical revelations, whether about the Second World War or about the Cold War or whatever, because I just don't believe there are many out there, or will be, until um, Russian archives become accessible, as they're certainly not today. But what we can work harder at is putting stuff in context so that uh, we can look at things from a different perspective. And for instance, I mean, I, some of my American friends are a little bit appalled that in this book, I sometimes say American historians take it absolutely for granted that America had an absolute right to insist that those missiles were removed from Cuba. But actually they didn't. And Britain's Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan said very politely to Jack Kennedy, he said, well, Mr. President, he said, um, Britain will support you all the way down the line through this crisis. But you have to remember, we, the British, have lived under the shadow of Soviet missiles um, almost on our doorstep for years. And really, we can't see that what's happening is making America any more dangerous. And so, you know, one of the big things I've said in the beginning of my book, which is important, this was not a strategic crisis. It was a political crisis. What it was really about, although Americans wouldn't see it in those terms at the time, was that Americans weren't really one bit more in any more peril after those missiles were installed. And apart from anything else, submarine-launched ballistic missiles were just becoming ubiquitous so that within a year or two, really, you were going to have submarine-launched missiles far closer to the American mainland than Cuba and there was absolutely nothing the Americans could do about it. And the same with the other side, from the American side. But it was perceptional. The American people, and especially conservative America, thought it was intolerable that these missiles should be um, on Cuban soil 90 miles from their territory. And they really regarded Cuba as being a legitimate, they thought really it ought to be part of the American empire. So I would like to think That uh, although I'm sure my book will raise a few American hackles, because quite a few Americans will say, well, he's taking a typical wet British perception, uh, you know, better red than dead, uh, which they all thought was the, uh, the wet British view about these things. But actually, there was more than one way of looking at this, and I've tried to look at it in that broader context.
1: You've achieved that really well. It's a really good rounded view. I think, as you say, what's unique about your book versus other histories is you've given much more context as to what else was going on in that period of the Cold War, and also some of the the background as to why some of these positions were taken by the by the various different sides. But what, one question I did want to ask you is: you were seventeen at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. What are your memories of that period? Were you aware of what was going on?
0: Sort of. I I was, as as most teenagers are, uh, I was more preoccupied with getting out of playing football uh, than I was with the Missile Crisis. But one knew two of my favourite stories uh, that I quoted in the first chapter of the book. One of them, Peter Hennessy, a historian I very much admire. And Peter... In one of his own books, has written very wittily about his horror on discovering that the Soviets had um, targeted Liverpool in the event of war with five megatons. And Peter wrote, and I still laugh out loud or think he said the dreadful thought occurred to him that if um, Liverpool had been incinerated by five nuclear megatons in nineteen sixty-two before the dawning of the age of the Beatles and Liverpool South, people might think that British popular music had reached its summit with Cliff Richard. <laughs> and another story I like very much indeed, which I've also quoted, was um, an RAF wing commander, as he later became, uh, sent me a letter when he heard that I was uh, writing this book. And he said he remembered being a grammar school sixth former uh, in 1962. And he said, one day when they were all waiting for their maths teacher to arrive. Um, And he said there was a very pretty girl in the class called Gillian. And this is in Kent. And she said, well, if we get one of these four-minute warnings, she said uh, that she knew how she and some of her friends were going to spend their last few minutes on earth with some fortunate boys. Um, And uh, she then said, uh, she said, the trouble is, she said, if it turns out to have been a false alarm, some of us are going to look pretty stupid. (laughs) And um, there's always a point about Armageddon or nuclear Armageddon especially. It's always halfway, it's so unbelievable that half of it's funny and the other half is so ghastly that it's, and this is of course, what made Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove such a brilliant piece of work because you never quite decide whether you're supposed to be laughing or crying. And this wing commander who sent me the letter about that story, he said afterwards in all these years, with the RAF afterwards, some of them attached to the USAF, he said he felt he never heard a more succinct explanation of the implications <laughs> of nuclear armageddon. You still don't know um, how far we laugh and how far we cry.
1: One of the things that really made me laugh, well, made me laugh, made me just incredulous, was the, the method that the British Prime Minister had of being able to communicate if he was in his official car.
0: Oh I no, mean, that was a great, I mean, that was fantastic, but it's all there in the documents. In those days, and you have to remember before mobile phones and when mobile radios were pretty unreliable, and to use a public telephone, you, uh, you had to put four pennies in the box before you could put through a call. And the proposal was that uh, the Prime Minister's driver, in the event that he was in his car the moment that a nuclear alert came through, should stop at a public call box. And the, the prime minister's driver should be issued with four pennies, which he should keep in the car to ensure that he had the means to communicate with Downing Street before um, uh, the bomb went off. And this was all, it's all there solemnly um, in uh, the records of the British government of that period. And actually one important difference between the British and the Americans is all the British from the Britain's Prime Minister downwards were in no doubt that if there was nuclear war, although you went through all the motions of preparing civil defence and uh, of um, preparing this vast underground bunker at Corsham for um, emergency government, they, they, they were in no doubt, privately, although they didn't say this, that British society would just cease to function. And Macmillan, in one of his official documents, when he was asked to nominate, who took over, in the event that he was incinerated. And he described his chancellor as first gravedigger and his foreign secretary as second gravedigger um, in the in the document, setting them forth, because he knew this was all for the fairies. But in the United States, they took all this far more seriously, the idea of working out how to survive. And this comes back to uh, to the madness of Dr. Strangelove again, where, uh, you know, lunatics talking about shutting themselves away in caves with armies of pretty women... The British, at least, were brutal realists. They knew that Britain would cease to exist in a meaningful way in the event of nuclear war, as is still the case.
1: The book is called Abyss by Max Hastings, The Cuban Missile Crisis 1962. You can buy the book and help support the podcast via the links in the episode notes. Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters, and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. If you'd like to help the project, just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week.